The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome back to another episode of Francis Watch, our final one of 2019. As always, a special thanks go to Novus Ordo Watch, who have sponsored every Francis Watch episode ever, which you can find at FrancisWatch.org. You can find Novus Ordo Watch, of course, at NovusOrdoWatch.org. I'm joined, as always, by our regular guest, His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada, Associate Professor at the same seminary, as well as Associate Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency, Father, thank you for joining us. Nice to be here. Happy to be here, and a um, happy Christmas octave to all of you. We are going to start with a pending catechism update coming from Bergoglio. An elementary sense of justice would imply that some behaviors, of which the corporations are usually responsible, do not go unpunished. In particular, those that can be considered ecocide, the massive contamination of air, land, and water resources, the large-scale destruction of flora and fauna, and any action capable of producing an ecological disaster or destroying an ecosystem. We are thinking that we have to introduce into the Catechism of the Catholic Church sins against ecology, ecological sin against the common home, because it is a duty. And as backup for this, he quotes the Amazon Synod, We propose to define ecological sin as an action or omission against God, against our neighbor, the community, and the environment. It is a sin against the future generations and is manifested in acts and habits of contamination and destruction of the harmony of the environment, a transgression of the principle of interdependence and rupture of the solidarity networks between creatures and against the virtue of justice. I mean, it's a bit against the virtue of justice to have to go through all of that, Your Excellency and Father, but is there such a thing as ecological sin or ecocide? Well, as far as I'm concerned, the stupidity is the last plastic straw, <laughs> if we want to put it that way. I mean, it is true that, uh, you know, one does have a uh, general obligation to society to see that actions and uh, programs are not undertaken that are generally harmful to the common good. So, uh, you know, fine, so far, uh, so good. Don't dump the uh, poison oil in the streams, because that's something that is, is going to harm the common good. But uh, what uh, Bergoglio and the Greenies have done here is uh, they have taken something like that and blown it uh, all out of proportion as a means, uh, ultimately, for social control. That uh, everything in society now is supposed to be seen in this ecological matrix, and the public authority now is supposed to regulate all of this. So it's taking uh, one little idea that uh, has some merit to it, 
and blowing it way out of proportion and making it part of a larger program for social control. And uh, indeed, uh, one thinks preparing the way for the Antichrist, because the more power you give these people, uh, the more they will use it uh, against us. Now, this is all part uh, of a drive toward international socialism. Uh, in in the 1930s and 40s, we had to deal with national socialism. Now it's international socialism that is the agenda of the left. And this whole push, uh, this fanaticism about uh, the ecology and the environment and, and all and the climate change is all one big thing. Uh, is to create a panic among all the peoples of the earth in such a way that they will accept a world government that will solve the world problem, the planetary problem of all of this. That's the that's the agenda. It is not merely to say that you shouldn't dump, uh, you know, nuclear uh, water <laughs> into the river and kill all the fish in it and kill all the people drinking it. That's so obvious. That's an obvious sin against justice. And of course, it should not be done. But this is to make a whole religion out of this and to, to transform the Catholic religion into a, uh, a, an ecological uh, religion and a, a climate change religion. And don't forget, uh, the goal is, and this is Monsieur de la Suisse writing in the early 1900s, the goal is dogmaless humanitarianism. That's what the Catholic Church has to become, and that's exactly what is being prepared here. This is humanitarianism. Our religion is to protect the earth and, and, and make it, the earth a better place for humanity, you see? And, uh, and no dogmas, you see? No, we, he just said the other day we shouldn't try to convert people. Uh, you shouldn't, he said to young people, don't try to convert people to your religion, you know, meaning your Catholic religion. So it's dogmaless, and we've had you know sixty years of dogmaless liturgy every Sunday, uh, a liturgy stripped of dogma. So those are the two elements: the the, the dogma, the no dogmas, and humanitarianism. So they've gotten rid of the dogmas, and so now they're really on the push for humanitarianism. And this uh, world, this idea of world government and international socialism began exactly a hundred years ago at the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. And it has been on a, that path ever since. The, uh, in the 1920s, you saw the call for the European Union, they called it something else, United States of Europe, <coughs> by you know, people that are, were super left-wing socialists. And um, what was a big interruption to it was the national socialism. And that is the the that uh, Hitler cooked up this idea of socialism, but uh, you know, with a German accent, and and uh, so the the that was a, a sort of a wrench in the whole works, and and uh, so the uh, but then they got back on board after World War II, and with the UN and all of the other uh, various agencies and left wing agents uh, have been moving toward this point, and and this fits hand in glove with the, the coming of the Antichrist, a world leader having a world government that is uh, atheistic and socialist. 
I think, too, it's interesting to observe the language, Your Excellency and Father. We have to introduce into the Catechism of the Catholic Church sins against ecology, meaning ones didn't exist before. So there's this evolution of dogma and introduction of sins. It's right there. I would like him to find something in sacred scripture or sacred tradition attesting to those sins, that that is a sinful thing. Really, it's all a part of justice. I mean, as, as Father says, there, there's a, a root of truth in this, and that is, yes, a big factory dumping all sorts of horrible chemicals into the river is contrary to justice, but you don't need a, you know, a special category of sin for that. That would be like uh, moving the, the stream so that it floods your neighbor's yard or something like that, moving the course of the stream. That's all covered in moral theology. Uh, it's against justice, uh, you know, doing something that might make your neighbor's house burn down or something. That's all against justice. So this is just justice on a grand scale. And, you know, in, in the past 50, 60 years, there's been a, a great deal of cleaning up of all of that stuff and a great deal of progress about it, which is a good thing. You know, I remember Lake Erie was, was I don't think anything lived in Lake Erie when I was a kid. There was mm-hmm. jokes about it. But now, you know, it's a, it's a flourishing lake, and, you know, they cleaned it up. And the, the, the danger is the fanaticism about it. It's not the, the idea of keeping the environment clean. That, that's, of course, you know, that, yes, absolutely. It's the fanaticism and making it into a religion that is the danger here. And you're, you're setting up, uh, you're correct, Your Excellency, in that it's uh, fanaticism and setting up this ecological religion as, uh, and, and its observance as some sort of a grand principle that we have to accommodate everything else to. And what occurs to me is that the, your extreme environmentalists uh, talk now about the idea of limiting the number of children, that a family should really have uh, a few or only one child because of the considerations of the environment. And you can see the fanaticism of this movement uh, applying that principle. And you can also see uh, modernists in the Novus Ordo establishment saying that, well, you know, if you have to um, balance one thing against the other. Yes, maybe marriage, one, maybe a secondary element of marriage, they might say, would be for uh, procreation. But then there's this larger consideration that you would have to have of respect for uh, the environment if you have more than uh, one child and a half. Uh, so it's these two things that you have to balance. One can see the argument coming. Mm-hmm. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, I think it was that uh, Alexandria uh, Occasional Cortex who said that she was having no children or something like that because of the environment. And I, I think all of the People on the right applauded that she would never have a child. I think everyone thinks that's a great idea that she be childless. But um, the uh, but it's it's this fanaticism and the you know the fanaticism of that and the climate change it, it actually wrecks the credibility of it. You know the, the and anybody is fanatical about something that does not deserve fanaticism. It wrecks the credibility. The only I always say the only thing you should be obsessed about is your eternal salvation. And no, nothing else deserves obsession or any kind of excitement uh, toward fanaticism. But you should be obsessed with your eternal salvation. 
But, you know, the, the earth is there for us to use. It, it, we're supposed to subdue it. And yes, there's going to be a certain damage to it in order to put up buildings and to, to just have the kind of life that we lead. And I say until those climate uh, fanatics get into the horse and buggies and until they get into the sailing ships, I am not paying a bit of attention to them. Uh, also, these, these left-wing Democrats who are climate fanatics are buying multi-million dollar homes uh, 60 feet from the waterfront in Florida. All right. So, you know, according to them, that's all going to be, you know, in a few years, we're all going to be drowning. And it tells you something. And look at the Obamas. They bought a house close to the water in uh, Martha's Vineyard, you know, for I don't know how many millions of dollars. You know, they're not taking it seriously. So why should we? It, the whole thing it has a, a an ulterior purpose to it, and that is this religion that wants to organize the whole world into atheistic socialism, international socialism. Yes, as you say, Your Excellency, it's important to examine uh, actions in contrast to words. Uh, it's clear that Francis isn't only talking, as, as is usual for him, but he also has a book on the same topic that's come out recently, uh, Our Mother Earth. And he uses language, uh, again, continuing the sin trope. He wants to talk about penance and repentance. He says in the book, I sincerely hope for growth in awareness and true repentance on the part of us all, men and women of the 21st century, believers or not, and on the part of our societies for allowing ourselves to be carried away by logics that divide, create hunger, isolate, and condemn. It would be good to ask the poor and the excluded for forgiveness. Then we could repent sincerely, including for the harm done to the earth, the sea, the air, and the animals. So it's an excellent way to shoehorn in the poor, although I'm not entirely certain how we would ask the poor for forgiveness in relation to the environment. It's not as if the poor own the environment by themselves. Oh, well, don't you understand? The developed world is churning out all of this junk and harmful stuff, and it's moving over into the undeveloped world and choking them to death and doing great harm to them. You don't understand that, do you? Well, it's very insensitive of you to use the word developed, uh, Your Excellency, because that would seem to imply that they are not on moving towards a standard that they've set for themselves, but that the West has arbitrarily put on them. Yes. Yeah, so that, well, excuse me, I, 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 I repent of that. I'll mention that in confession. <laughs> We've got to find a politically neutral term for that. Was, would it be differently developed? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, again, if you want to move around at 70 miles an hour, you're going to be, have to burn something that's pretty ugly. I don't care what it is. <laughs> if you uh, put batteries in the car, that lithium is, is toxic. What are you going to do with all of those lithium batteries after they're dead? All right. Uh, what, how are you going to find that lithium, which is rare, uh, except by blowing up mountains and things like that? This is a, I mean, when you think of completely changing over to electric vehicles, for example, you know how much side effect that will have in, in the environment uh, as far as producing those things and then dealing with the garbage that comes from those things. I mean, that's a tremendous amount of energy that is expended every day just in the United States. And you think of trucks and all, all the things that use petroleum. And uh, if you're going to, to put that into uh, electricity, what are you going to burn? 
to make all of that electricity. So if you want to move around fast, if you want to move faster than a horse, then you're going to have to burn something really, really disgusting and ugly. So until he gets a horse and carriage, I'm, I'm not, you know, and if he wants to go to Timbuktu and a horse and carriage, I'll listen to him. But all of these same idiots are in Davos, as we speak, having gone there in their private jets, of course, and, and uh, you know, spewing out all sorts of disgusting fumes and carbon dioxide to go there and to just have another talk. They just had a talk somewhere in Portugal, I think, the UN, where they couldn't decide anything. So little St. Greta Thunberg, or whatever her name is, got disgusted. And then now they're in Davos, you know, the, the, in Switzerland, the super rich, how, how much is being burned to keep those people from getting cold in Davos when you think of the, you know, the huge buildings and, and splendorous places that they're in. I mean, this whole thing is a joke. It's just absurd. I mean, it's, a, it's, 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 you can't even think about it as so absurd. Let them give the example. Go back to the horses. And then we can worry about horse, you know, exhaust and, and what that's going to do to the environment. Oy, yay, yay, yay. When you think of how many, the whole population of the earth using horses and all the hay that is necessary for all those horses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the candles and then how we have to go to the bees for the candles because we can't use paraffin. We have to go back to the bees. Well, think of those poor bees. That, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is crazy. And then you shut down the whole medical world. I mean, it, it, since all of the things that depend on all of the modern technology that would have to just go away because we have to protect the earth. I mean, people dying young, just like they did in the Middle Ages, et cetera. You know, I mean, okay, that's the world you want. You know, that's that's... That's what they're, they're asking for, and they're not really asking for that. They're going on with their modern lives and moving around at high speeds. Well, if we leave this behind us uh, as horses leave both gas and manure behind them, we look at another so-called act of the magisterium, the very first part of our first segment of our episode today. It was the so-called canonization of, of Cardinal Newman. And over the years, we've been able to look at so-called canonizations by these claimants as opportunities to reflect on these people and also as an opportunity to hold the people who say this man is the vicar of Jesus Christ to their word and say, well, if he says that this person is a saint, he or she is a saint. Now, with Cardinal Newman, this is somewhat interesting because this topic had come up. Uh, His Excellency and I were recently together in France, and I remember talking about Cardinal Newman because I don't feel that I know him as well as I might. But Novus Ordo Watch had an interesting article out regarding Bishop Edward Thomas O'Dwyer, who put out a pamphlet called Cardinal Newman and the Encyclical Pascendi Dominici Gregi. So the pamphlet had come out to counter people who had been using Cardinal Newman for their own ends. And then this occasioned a response from His Holiness uh, to the bishop uh, in which he praises uh, his work and seems to vindicate Cardinal Newman. Some of the text includes, for if in the things he had written before his profession of the Catholic faith, one can justly detect something which may have a kind of similarity with certain modernist formulas, you are correct in saying that this is not relevant to his later works. 
His way of thinking has been expressed in very different ways, both in the spoken word and his published writings, and the author himself, on his admission into the Catholic Church, forwarded all his writings to the authority of the same church so that any corrections might be made, if judged appropriate. In the domain of England, it is common knowledge that Henry Newman pleaded the cause of the Catholic faith in his prolific literary output so effectively that his work was both highly beneficial to its citizens and greatly appreciated by our predecessors, and so he is held worthy of office whom Leo XIII, undoubtedly a shrewd judge of men and affairs, appointed cardinal. Indeed, he was very highly regarded by him at every stage of his career, and deservedly so. Nothing can be found to bring any suspicion about his faith. He has perhaps used an off-guard manner of speaking to some people in certain places, but that is what the modernists do is falsely and deceitfully take those words out of the whole context of what he meant to say and twist them to suit their own meaning. We therefore congratulate you for having, through your knowledge of all his writings, brilliantly vindicated the memory of this eminently upright and wise man from injustice, and also for having, to the best of your ability, brought your influence to bear among your fellow countrymen, but particularly among the English people. So, Your Excellency and Father, can you give us more context so that we're not simply looking at what His Holiness said here, but Cardinal Newman's career in general and what we are to think of this? Well, the trick of using his writings, using the writings of Newman and the uh, different things that Newman said, was certainly one that I was familiar with because in the modernist seminary, you'd often have this professor or that uh, say that this particular understanding of a dogma that he had, that this modernist professor had, really reflected what, what Newman had. So he uh, gained, at least in the 1960s and the 1970s, when I was in the seminary, this sort of um, reputation, as it were, or rather the professors tried to give him this uh, reputation as someone who is uh, entirely sympathetic to modernism. But of course, you know, we know uh, subsequently that uh, they are deceivers, and that is not necessarily the case. And uh, it seems that this particular uh, statement that uh, you've just read uh, acknowledges that. Well, in my study of modernism, I, uh, despite what St. Pius X says there, I mean, th there are certain facts in his background that are highly suspect. One is the famous quote at dinner where uh, somebody, it was a birthday party for him, and somebody raised the glass and said, to the Pope. And he responded, yes, to the Pope, but to conscience first. If you place conscience over the Pope, you are a Protestant. Right? So that, that is, as it stands, an unorthodox statement. Understood in that way, it's totally unorthodox. All right? Uh, I think he had, in my opinion, a, a very strong Anglican hangover. And he was also very, very thick with von Hugel, who was a German who lived in England, who was a modernist devil. That's the only way to put it, a modernist devil. And he had this friendship with von Hugel, and, and he is... Uh, he is cited uh, by uh, Tyrell and other modernists. Uh, you know, I, I, I just, uh, I'm, I'm wondering if Pius X knew everything. You know, if uh, don't forget, he's writing in English. Saint Pius X did not know English. I'm just wondering if a rosy picture had been given to Pius X by this Monsignor Dwyer, or whatever his name is, 
and uh, that such a letter was able to be written because I think his his whole friendship with the modernist movement is very suspect. The other thing, though, that I would point out in connection with this is uh, I think it came up uh, once before about a year ago, uh, some statements that Newman had made about the Aryan crisis or about the papacy. And it turned out that these were, in fact, the type of statements that Pius X was talking about that were statements from his pre-Catholic period, as it were. So there is a bit of confusion over that, and uh, I've seen these particular statements uh, cited against him. As far as, you know, myself, I'm not a terrible fan of Newman, and I remember being forced to read his uh, idea of a university in a literature class in the minor seminary, and thinking I really didn't care for it. He did certainly good apologetic work in bringing people to the, the truths of the Catholic faith in England. So it's, it's, it's a, to my way of thinking, maybe it's a bit of a uh, mixed bag. But I think that the point uh, is, is the one, the important point to remember is the one that Pius X makes, that, you know, he did submit his writings to the authority of the church, and um, uh, that it, is, it was these things uh, form the basis upon which he was judged. I mean, it seems he was a bit of a superstar at some point, I think. Obviously, there's a public relations coup at taking a high-level intellectual Anglican and making him a cardinal of the Catholic Church. But, I mean, even in my—I'm uh, sure both Your Excellency and Father are familiar with the prayer book, Blessed Be God, which is a, a book I really enjoy, but there are several— quotes and prayers taken from Cardinal Newman. This book, um, so my my edition was imprimatur in 1924. So I, I think Cardinal Newman must have been, in a certain sense, a kind of superstar, such that a prayer book in the 1920s is using several of his prayers uh, in English. Why? Because he was very well regarded at the time. So I think, in a certain sense, too, there might be some understandable PR uh, being worked in the English-speaking world at that time. Mm, yeah, I, I just, uh, I am not a fan of Cardinal Luma. That's the only thing I could say. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly doesn't sit right with his you know, and, and then there's also the problem, as they point out, that, you know, I mean, he's one of these people who speaks in sort of an offhand manner sometimes, so... I don't know how people can put up with people like that, you know? Yes. As you know, we're familiar with, with the tendency, at least, of, of some English bishops to speak like this, Father. <laughs> Perhaps. Your Excellency, so Father Shikata had noted that he did not uh, care for the idea of a university. Is there writings or, or, or sermons of his that you came across that, that rubbed you the wrong way? Well, I mean, that was the principal one. It was, it was hearing the uh, modernists speak favorably about him that uh, sort of turned me off. Uh, but, I mean, his, his sermons and his uh, apologetic works, such familiarity I have with them, I mean, they seemed really to be quite excellent, even though, as I say, I'm not a, not a great fan of his style. He was anti-infallibility at the 1870 Council, Vatican Council, because he thought it was inopportune, which was the position of all of the liberals. The accommodationist school, you refer to them, Your Excellency. Yes, yes. And Leo XIII named a great deal of liberal bishops. Cardinal Lavigerie, Le, I'm thinking of right away, but a lot of liberal bishops were named by 
Leo the Thirteenth, because he had this idea of accommodation to the modern world as the way in which to have the church survive in the modern world, and uh, that's why he uh, supported the uh, ralliement in in France and. Uh, you know, that the Catholics should not resist the Third Republic, the atheistic, socialistic, uh, diabolical Third Republic, but that uh, they should rally to it and support it. And in return, we can expect the Third Republic to be nice to us. That was the idea. And he actually, in a certain encyclical, complained to the Third Republic, essentially, we've been nice to you, but you haven't been, not been nice to us. And it is said that he regretted that whole policy on his deathbed. So, I mean, uh, you know, it just was the spirit of the age, I would say. The, the, uh, he was elected, Leo XIII was elected in reaction to Pius IX, uh, Pius IX being considered too rigid and uh, too anti-modern world. It's just something to know. And, you know, he was a, uh, Leo XIII was a great pope with regard to his teachings. Uh, and but in the practical order, he uh, he let a lot of things go, uh, and he uh, had that attitude that if you're you know soft and conciliatory with the enemies of the church, they're going to come around, and it just didn't happen. There were a lot of people who should have been condemned under his reign that were not condemned. He would he refused to condemn, for example, Loisy, um, who needed condemnation. You know, like uh, a baby needs milk. I mean, he uh, he really was in need of of condemnation, but he, he we wouldn't condemn him. And uh, so, you know, these are just examples. Uh, but if you see, if you look at the practical side of his reign, there was a lot of uh, things that should have been done that were not done, and I think that reign contributed to modernism uh, because Pius X only had his relatively short pontificate of 1903 to 1914 to deal with that. But he came upon a situation in the church where modernists were crawling all over the place. You know, it's history. And no matter what you want to say, that's history. And then the popes after that reverted to the Leo Thirteenth line of accommodation. And that's why we have Vatican II. I think the important parallel here, Your Excellency, in relation to Cardinal Newman and to sainthood is that we can't only look at writings and we cannot only look at actions. But for sainthood, we have to look at both. And those two together in context give us a, give us a greater understanding of, of why this person needs to be imitated and, and why they, they lived heroic lives. Yes. Is it a part of her heroism to be chummy with, with modernist devils and to correspond yes. in a friendly manner with modernist devils? Is that part of being a saint? Yes, I think those points are well taken, Your Excellency, and I think our listeners will have a good balance to that letter that we read from His Holiness. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just thinking that St. Pius X was given a rosy picture. That's, that's what I think, because if, if I think if he really delved into Cardinal Newman, he would say, this man should not be canonized, and that he did a lot of things that were not very good. I think he would have said that. Yes, I think that's entirely possible. What's interesting, it's been so long since our last recording that we're looking back, and can you believe Pacamama came about uh, in, since the time of our last recording, uh, the entire drama uh, relating to it, and the, the throwing into the river, and then the rescuing of them. Uh, Francis had asked forgiveness, again, we're always asking for forgiveness, 
uh, to those who were offended by the action of those who removed the pagan idols from the church and threw them in the Tiber. He assured those present that there had not been idolatry in the worship and display of the pagan idols, that they had been recovered, and were now under the care of the police. He also said the pagan idols will be brought to St. Peter's Basilica for the closing ceremony of the Synod this Sunday. And again, I know this seems to be very old news probably to our listeners, Your Excellency and Father, but they have not had your commentary yet. So I will let you go forward. Well, the um, statues didn't make it into the Basilica for the closing mass of the Synod, but a bowl of uh, some sort of a wooden bowl of uh, that's customarily used in pagan offerings to the Pachamama was uh, received by uh, Bergoglio during the symbolic offertory procession. And Bergoglio then gave this to the master of ceremonies, this uh, Monsignor Marini, uh, the great hero to lace wearers. And uh, Marini brought it and he put it on the high altar of St. Peter's. So if you want to talk about a, a symbolic gesture uh, that's offensive, that's about as offensive as you can get, an offering to pagan gods placed on the high altar of St. Peter's. Then the, um, there was, of course, the drama of the, the fellow throwing the Pachamama into the, the river. That was actually an absolutely brilliant piece of theater that uh, drew attention uh, worldwide attention to uh, exactly what was going on. He's to be given a great deal of credit, this man, an Austrian man, for what he did, because the act electrified people throughout the world in the way that no article or uh, no other sort of video could have. So it, it made people aware of the fact that now idolatry is taken as nothing, nothing really to worry about, along with uh, adultery and other things. It's totally in conformity with the modernist principle. Uh, if modernism is that God reveals himself in various ways in various peoples according to their his history and their environment, and that uh, this is merely another way in which God has revealed himself, and that, you know, the Mother Earth and worshiping the Pachamama. And so it, it's, it's just modernism. That's all it is. I mean, I was not surprised to see it at all. It's totally consistent with their principles. So, you know, the, it's the same thing as having a Vesper service with Protestants and uh, it's dogmaless. It's stripping the church of dogma. It is, uh, it is to say that, that the Catholic Church is not the one true church outside of which there is no salvation. Uh, it's to say merely that we have our religious experiences and the Pachamamists have their religious experiences, and we need to respect those. And, and that it's all one big happy religion and uh, so forth. I mean, it, it's old hat. It's It's... So, you know, people, it's nothing really to be shocked at. You know, if people were shocked, they shouldn't be. Uh, Assisi was actually just as bad with the worship of the Great Thumb. I don't, I don't know if you recall that. And also the worship of fire that was approved by the Holy Father. And then the worship of the Buddha statue in place of the crucifix. The crucifix was taken down in the Church of St. Clair, I think it was. And, and the Buddha statue put up the golden Buddha and incensed. So we've seen this is old hat. This is 30 years old. So why are we upset? What's the problem? 
<laughs> Good point. It's the, uh, the, it's thing the is abomination it's, of desolation in the holy place. I'll give it that. But you know, it's penetrated. The, the, the filth and dirt and, and stink has penetrated into the walls of the Vatican. I'll I'll go that far. But it's really nothing inconsistent with what has gone on since Vatican II. Sure, people have short memories, and uh, the idea, uh, I guess, of uh, the devout or say the the. 20-year-olds, et cetera, who've fallen into the, uh, let's say, this, the conservative wing of the uh, Novus Ordo Church, that uh, they're willing to go along with certain things and, and uh, take certain things for granted and, and uh, as givens. But when they come across something like that, all of a sudden, they're shocked by it. Uh, for oldsters, you know, like ourselves, it certainly isn't shocking. but to someone who is new to the width and breadth of the post-Vatican II apostasy, uh, something like this, uh, understandably, should be rather shocking. And uh, one hopes that it leads many of them to consistency and to research the real source of the problem. Uh, the, the Novus Ordo conservatives are going through a, a meltdown uh, of their whole model, their system that they devised under Benedict the Sixteenth, that that somehow there is a, a solution between pre-Vatican II and post-Vatican II, and, and Benedict was their great hope that he would find that that missing link, you know, something like the Neanderthal man between the, the Catholic religion and the new religion. That has exploded with with uh, with Francis, totally exploded, and, and they if you read some of their literature, they're really having a problem with it because the specter of sativacantism is staring them in the face. And you know, for them, they, they have this, you know, this, this horror of, of sativacantism, which is really uh, yeah, so obvious. Uh, so they are, are actually, you know, in certain cases, even denying their, not denying, but they're questioning their faith and, and, uh, uh, and so forth, you know, and which is perfectly correct if you admit that man is the Pope, because that means the Catholic Church is defected and, and all of the claims of the Catholic Church are a hoax if you admit that man is the Pope. So, you know, they're, they're going through a major problem. And this Pachamama just, you know, just put them over the top. Uh, just uh, the adultery, and, you know, they had just digested more or less the adultery and the receiving communion, you know, and the state of mortal sin and all of that. They, they, they managed to get that through their bowels. Uh, but now this, the Pachamama, is, is just uh, over the top for them. So, you know, they had a lot of crisis about it. One of the things we discussed fairly extensively, Bishop Dolan and I, is the phenomenon now that you see people who are you know, very tight with the Novus Ordo establishment who are criticizing things like this. Ten years ago, that would have been inconceivable uh, that if you were employed by the Novus Ordo establishment in one way or another uh, and disagreed with something that was uh, going on officially, you would have kept your mouth shut uh, because you wanted to keep your job, et cetera, and you figure, well, uh, go along to get along. But the latest example of that uh, I saw was on uh, the site uh, Crisis Magazine, a conservative Novus Ordo, in effect, blog. They post two articles per day from a conservative point of view. 
And it was uh, written about this idea of accompaniment, of accompanying people who are in living in uh, these, in effect, adulterous marriages. At some point, the uh, Bergoglio's apostolic delegate to the United States, in effect, read out the U.S. bishops for not being uh, open to this, uh, or sufficiently open and welcoming to this sort of accompaniment. This man who wrote the article is an official actually in the Archdiocese of Cincinnati as a layman, and he's head of the Family Life Office in Columbus, the Columbus Diocese, and also currently is the head of the Family Life Office in the Cincinnati Archdiocese. And so he deals with all sorts of marriage difficulties and marriage cases. But he absolutely went ballistic about this idea. Bergoglio's idea and the idea of Bergoglio's apostolic delegate, that these people are crying out for accompaniment. And he said that he's never once had any one of these types of people approach him and ask for uh, some sort of a help or some sort of an accompaniment, that it's a made-up need that, uh, in effect, ends up undercutting the traditional Catholic teaching on the indissolubility of marriage. And he made a number of other points. And, you know, it was shocking that someone who was part of the Novus Ordo establishment would say something uh, like this, say something so openly critical, uh, because, you know, he's taking the, the, uh, the king's shilling, as it were. Uh, he's being paid by the Novus Ordo. But that is an indication to me of how deep the displeasure and the nervousness goes with uh, some people in the Novus Ordo institution. I think, too, when His Excellency is speaking about Assisi, I mean, those of us who are a little, shall we say, older, uh, were able to look back at the the photos of the, the Buddha on top of the tabernacle, and that's very obvious. But I think the reason why Father Chikata referred to the sort of the dramatic throwing in is because all of this was was streamed to us and delivered in, in a phrase His Excellency despises called real time, that people were able to see this and react to it then in this sort of, if in a certain sense, if a CC had happened today uh, with today's technology and YouTube, it might have made the same, shall we say, splash in the Tiber that those Pacamamas made. I think that's a very good point, Stephen. Because these things now have become more and uh, more visible, more obvious to people. And that was certainly something that we didn't have, uh, you know, when the changes were occurring in the church in the 60s, in the 70s, in uh, the 80s, and then uh, even to a large extent throughout the 90s as well. But I mean, uh, now everything is, is instantaneous. You know, you, you can see Bergoglio with the hammer and sickle you know, him uh, dealing with Evo Morales, and you can see him with the Pachamama and the people bowing down to it. And it is, uh, it does make an impression. Images make an impression. I disagree with that. I think that the, the Novus Ordo conservatives are absolute in their idea to maintain that man as the Pope. And if well, he has. He's denied the divinity of Christ. If he, if he came out with the most explicit heresy, they would still find a way that he is still the Pope. Such is their horror for Vacantism. So I, I don't think it really makes a difference with them. I think well, they just, no, think it just is a stress, an added stress. That's all. 
Yeah, you know, I think you're right uh, in that sense that uh, they, all of these different uh, excuses that they make up, it's sort of anything but uh, sadivacantism. But the fact that it's, it's more and more, the effect of it is destroying uh, the Catholic notion of the papacy. Because in their minds, okay, this guy is still the Pope, and he does all these horrible things, and we can ignore him. So the idea is that the notion of any sort of papal authority or the, some sort of a special preservation of uh, the teaching of the Pope, even in his ordinary teaching, is, is gone. They dismiss it. It's hyper-papalism. So it's having an effect, but it's not having the effect, you're right, that it should have. Yes. Well, it certainly had the effect of producing, or at least inspiring, a new article from Father Chikata, which you can find at fatherchikata.com, called Papa Pacamama's Evolution. <laughs> uh, I think you, did you do that on purpose, Father, to, to give us a bit of a tongue twister? Papa yes, Par- close of peace. No. <laughs> Papa Pacamama's Profession of the Modernist Heresy. Could you give our listeners a bit of a preachy, a, a dust cover summary of that article, since we don't have time to, to get into it? It's quite long. Maybe we could see the movie instead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering who's going to play me in the movie now that Clint Eastwood has retired. So uh, the idea is basically Bella this. Bella Lugosi, that, maybe. Then. <laughs> he'd have to rise again, I think. Uh, <laughs> you might have to explain to the younger people who Bella Lugosi is, Your Excellency. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's another thing. And he was a famous actor that played Dracula and other horrible people in, in I think, the 1930s, in very old yes, movies. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so Boris Karloff, too, maybe. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that would, be, that would be another one, you know. Yeah, 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 I think uh, that, that's where you would, you know, look for your your candidates for that. <laughs> but the the idea uh, behind the article is basically this: that people have a difficulty understanding uh, what is at the heart of modernism, which is the evolution of dogma. And the reason people have a difficulty understanding that, or historically why they had it is because the uh, modernists were very clever in their use of uh, ambiguous language. Language that sometimes could be taken in an orthodox sense, sometimes in a heretical sense. And as Pius X pointed out, when you call them on it, then of course they would insist that no, they meant the orthodox sense, absolutely. So you have this problem in dealing with modernism, how it turns uh, Catholic dogmas into sort of a mush. And uh, it historicizes, it relativizes everything. So this, it's a difficulty explaining this uh, to people. But what the Vatican did is shortly after the Pachamama episode, they put out a document that, in effect, explained in a clear uh, way how modernists were supposed to operate with the evolution of dogma. and. And when I read it, and I think I was at the seminary when I read it, the both of us were shocked that it was such an open profession of the modernist heresy, the evolution of dogma. It was, as it were, the perfect explanation for the Pachamama episode and for uh, so many of the heirs of the post-Vatican II Church, how what is considered true and uh, immutable as a Catholic teaching can suddenly be turned over on its head through this idea of 
evolution and seeing it in a historical context, etc. And the Vatican document had all of the classic modernist ideas that we remember from the 60s, this idea of a journey, and that's how we, we evolve. We're going along in a journey, we're passengers, etc. We're going towards some sort of a goal. It's not exactly clear what the goal is, uh, etc. But, you know, we're moving along. We're on the, the, the big bus, even as uh, Catholic teaching is being thrown under the bus. So, as I said, I, for me, it was a very, very significant pronouncement from the Vatican that showed exactly what the modernist program is and what it should be in the future. Well, along that same line, we have this idea of adoring God or adoring dogmatic formulations. This was in an audience that was given, I think it was in October. Yes, October of this year. And it's a, it's a it's seemingly rhetorical question, Your Excellency and Father, that was posed. Do I adore God or do I adore dogmatic formulations? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know what he adores. <laughs> uh, obviously, a dogmatic formulation is not the object of adoration, but dogmatic uh, formulations are the object of our assent on the authority of God revealing. And dogmatic formulations are true descriptions of the nature of God, something that modernists deny. See, they are only. Uh, our ways of understanding him now, and we say this now, we think, you know, we, we try to take a shot at it now with this, and but that could change in the future. But dogmatic formulations are precisely that dogmatic, and that is never changing, and they are truly representative of what God is and, and how to attain him, and that's moral dogmas. <coughs> so uh, it, they're, they're very much tied up to the principle of adoration of God. That is a typically modernist thing to uh, disparage the dogmatic formula as something that is uh, that is a, an insult to the human intellect, and it's like a stone from heaven coming down on your head, as they used to say. It's one of their typical false oppositions. Yes, yes, yes. So yeah, he's been to the school of modernism. He he's just the perfect modernist. I mean, you, you couldn't get a better specimen. They should put him in a cage and. So people can watch him and come to a zoo and watch him. Uh, I, I think that's a felicitous phrase. You're actually, he's been to the school of modernism. He might be the headmaster. Yeah, I think so. But you know, it's not a single thing that he misses. I mean, it's just like the textbook of modernism, 1960s modernism. It's a textbook. It's the stuff that he comes out with. Well, one of those, shall we say, dogmatic formulations, or at least it, it was uh, framed that way by some people, was the idea of Our Lady as co-redemptrix. The quote from Francis regarding this issue, she never wanted for herself something that was of her son. She never introduced herself as co-redemptrix. No, disciple, he said, meaning that Mary saw herself as a disciple of Jesus. Mary, the Pope insisted, never stole for herself anything that was of her son. Instead, serving him because she is mother, she gives life. When they come to us with the story of declaring her this or making that dogma, let's not get lost in foolishness. So obviously, I think it's important to, to discuss this from a couple different angles, Your Excellency and Father. One, what is the Church's teaching on Our Lady as co-redemptrix? What is its status in terms of 
what uh, faithful are obliged to believe. And then, of course, the context of referring to teachings like this as foolishness. Well, uh, to my knowledge, it has never been defined. So I wouldn't call it a defined dogma. I think there is, it would be controverted whether it belongs to universal ordinary magisterium or merely that it, it, that it be a, a, a theological opinion. But it is commonly taught by Catholic theologians. Uh, by that I mean theologians before the council, commonly taught. And it makes all the sense in the world that just as she cooperated in the incarnation, so she cooperates in the redemption uh, with all of the correct distinctions to be made. Uh, so, I mean, for him to call that foolishness just shows his completely asinine mind. I mean, it'd be one thing if he said, you know, uh, I think this needs more research or I don't think it's definable. Uh, there was a question, for example, whether mediatrics of all graces was definable. And it was the general conclusion before the council that it was definable. I don't think it ever, to my knowledge, it was never defined. But corridemtrics, is it definable? Is there enough? Uh, scriptural and traditional evidence for it. Uh, uh, the, but to call it foolishness is, I mean, that, that is, you know, calls into question the assumption, you know, uh, making dogmas, you know, she's just a disciple and making dogmas. I mean, that is, that is implicitly heresy, that she's just a disciple. That's, you know, it, it, it is so much heresy in that statement, in other words, it, 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 certainly she was a disciple, but that, that she was only a disciple is loaded with the spirit of heresy. Uh, she was a cooperator in, in the redemption because she was conceived without sin. So even though she was redeemed, she was nonetheless uh, conceived without sin, and therefore she was in a position to aid our Lord in the, in the redemption. So uh, the but, you know, with the worst thing here is saying getting lost in foolishness. Yeah. What, what, a, what a disgusting thing to say about, about Our Lady's uh, cooperation in the, in the redemption. Uh, you know, it, the, uh, it's a supine uh, theological ignorance, right? That, I mean, if he had any respect for theology— uh, Catholic theology, he would have uh, kept his mouth shut or at least uh, tried to research the topic and temper his remarks, but he doesn't. He doesn't care because it's dogma and it's not important to him. The other thing that I think is important for us to point out all the time is that the uh, popular uh, notion of heresy all the time is the uh, is that it's it's simply a contradiction, a no to a uh, particular dogmatic uh, teaching or proposition. But uh, also part of the definition of heresy is calling it into doubt. And this is what the modernists do. Uh, this is what Bergoglio does day after day, and this is what he did with the idea of uh, the, uh, in his discussion of Our Lady's co-redemptrix, that all of the other points, the dogmas about Blessed Mother that uh, you mentioned, uh, Your Excellency, uh, these, his uh, remark, his remarks, in effect, uh, cast doubt upon the truth of those. And I, that is the point. That is the point, that he can't be nailed on a 
necessarily on a direct denial of a defined dogma uh, in most cases, okay? But uh, it's always this uh, uh, casting of doubt upon it through these uh, different through these different weird formulations uh, that he that he insists on using, and that is the poison of modernism. Well, there's also again the quotes that we've been used to now throughout Francis Watch all these years that just catch us from left field. We don't understand the context for it at all. Pope Francis said, St. Paul is really showing us that we conquer overwhelmingly through the love of Christ. Ever since the Lord called Paul along the road to Damascus, the apostle to the Gentiles sought to understand the mystery of Christ. He had fallen in love with Christ, said the Pope, caught up in a strong love and not in a soap opera type of story. St. Paul felt the Lord accompany him through all manner of good and bad times. You really have to wonder, where where does he get this stuff? Uh, Did he learn it at the school of modernism that he attended? His Excellency referred to. I, I think it shows that he's a moron, frankly, a disrespectful moron. Uh, I think that would be the proper <laughs> word for him to say something so stupid as that. Uh, uh, it, it's disrespectful of St. Paul. It's uh, you're, it's disrespectful of the, sp- the people you are speaking to. And uh, again, he he just uh, exudes both ignorance and heresy and. And uh, stupidity; those three things always come out you know, to a greater or lesser extent in practically everything he says. Uh, and here we have, uh, you know, uh, disrespect uh, of sacred things and a moronic uh, uh, comment about Saint Paul, and comparing that to, you know, even negatively comparing that to a soap opera. It's just so stupid. I mean, how do you take, how does anyone take that man seriously? He also, uh, in that same month, this was again October of this year, was giving a talk to a sort of a pet project he had when he was back in Buenos Aires, a uh, group called Scolas Ocorrentes. And it was, a, they had sponsored something called the Fourth World Meeting of Young People. And Francis goes on to speak about death, and I, I don't want to subject our, our readers to it, because as I'm reading it over, it's really tedious. But I can look at the the last part uh, to, to give us some sense. Again, uh, if, it's not the, if it's not the insults, it's the inanity uh, of his words. That is why I thank you so much, because you have had the courage to confront this question and to pass with your own bodies through the three deaths that by emptying us fill us with life, the death of every instant, the death of the ego, the death of one world gives way to a new one. Remember, if death is not to have the last word, it is because in life we learn to die for one another. And throughout this entire speech he gives, which you, you can find uh, on the internet if just by searching for these terms or looking at the Novus Ordo watch story, there's no mention of the four last things. There's no mention of our Lord, his church, uh, what actually you need to do to prepare for death. And this, again, is standard Francis delivery. It's something we've, we've gotten used to in all these years. So as his excellence pointed out, we shouldn't be surprised, but yet it's always another opportunity for us to revisit the different ways in which he puts forth this drivel. Yeah, because in the modernist system, the question of four last things is something that is not really all that important to consider. That uh, heaven, whatever it may be, you're all going to that. And in the case of Bergoglio, as far as hell goes, uh, well, if you're really bad, um, really, really bad, 
uh, then you just simply get zapped and knocked out of uh, uh, knocked out of existence. So th- these really aren't uh, considerations uh, for them anymore. So he doesn't talk about them. Uh, you would th- you would think you would find something in the discourse of a putative Roman pontiff about death, uh, something about uh, uh, judgment at least, but uh, here you find nothing. So they avoid uh, these topics uh, by sort of moving around them and talking about something else. Yeah, Carl Reiner said that when you die, you become one with the cosmos, something like an animal. No, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was, <laughs> so, uh, no, modernists don't believe in, you know, beatific vision and uh, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And No, that's not important for them. As he says, that we've learned to die for one another. What he should have said, that if death is not to have the last word, it is because in life we have learned to die to this world. That would be correct, not to die for one another. See, again, everything is humanized. You see, we die for each other. You know, we love, you know, humankind so much, and we're ready to die for, you know, making a better world, you know, or uh, to die for the climate and everything. It's all the same garbage. Another another quote that he gave last month uh, in a meeting with the Vatican Dicastery for Laity, Family, and Life, I, I thought might have indicated he's not familiar with the conditions on the ground. His quote was, we must move forward to include women in advisory positions also in government without fear. Yes, of course, also as heads of dicasteries. The place of women in the church is not just as functionaries. Women's advice is very important. The role of women in ecclesial organization in the church goes further, and we must work on this as well because woman is the image of Mother Church. And he had noted that he had considered two women for the appointment last week of this very dicastery for laity family and life. The reason I say he's unfamiliar with the facts on the ground is uh, they've been running <laughs> the show. Um, anyone who thinks the women are not involved in the uh, Vatican II Church is not familiar with how dioceses are run, how parishes are run. <laughs> Father Chicada and I both uh, follow on Twitter the the parody account Susan from the Parish Council. Oh yes, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> which which attempts to be funny, but very often hits very close to the mark of truth, which is again probably why it's so funny. Um, facts on the ground, uh, he's, he's talking as if this hasn't already happened. But I thought it might be helpful also, Your Excellency Father, to talk about, uh, for in case the faithful don't know, what is a dicastery? How does it fit within uh, church governance? And what would be the significance, uh, uh, let's say, prior, prior to the council? Uh, could uh, someone uh, have been uh, admitted to this who is a layman or even, let's say, a woman? Yeah, well, it's uh, sort of strange that they would have picked this... Uh obscure word uh, from canon law dicasteries. In the old code of canon law, uh, the different Vatican departments, uh, most of them were called congregations. And the idea was that it was a group, a congregation of uh, cardinals and members of the clergy and different experts. But for some reason, recently, Bergoglio changed this to dicasteries. And I've never seen a uh, a real explanation for exactly why they did it. But what he means here is, in effect, he means the Vatican departments. And in the old days, those, um, uh, and even now, have considerable influence and considerable power, because the idea behind, whether you call it a castry or congregation, 
as uh, it's a, a ministerial body that helps the Pope govern the church. So that's the idea. So his idea is to put uh, women into uh, in charge in uh, some of these uh, dicasteries. So if you're a uh, priest, or if, rather if you're a bishop from uh, some diocese uh, in uh, the United States and uh, you go over to make a report to the Vatican, uh, you go over to meet, uh, you can conceivably go over to meet the uh, equivalent, Vatican equivalent of Susan from the parish council. And uh, she will advise you uh, as to exactly what you're supposed to do. So that's the idea. I don't think there's any law against making women in charge of dicasteries, but I think it was considered to be so unlikely that no sane person would ever think about it in the past. But I, I <laughs> that's don't. It's like a lot of things in the new church. Right. You know, there's there, like women priests, I mean, it's hard to find. Uh, you know, condemnations of women priests. There were certain heretical groups that did it and were condemned for that. But, you know, that uh, a statement from a council or a pope that you cannot ordain women uh, is hard to find. I mean, there's not that much on it because the whole idea was considered so absurd that, you know, who would even talk about it? But now, you know, it, it's, uh, and as Father Randolph used to say, I'm, I'm all for it. You know, I mean, I'm all for women priests because the sooner the, the, that the Novus Ordo Church can be seen to be a, a phony baloney as it is, uh, the better. And I think women priests might really give some, <laughs> some hand-wringing for the Novus Ordo conservatives, uh, as it did for the Anglicans, even the Episcopalians and the Anglicans, the women priests. Uh, so. You know, it, it's just you know another uh, uh, another stone that falls down from the the great structure of the Catholic Church, and and well, uh, and the thing is that it, it would make sense to do it there because already in the dioceses you have uh, oh, for decades you've had chancellorettes, you've had the the chancellor of the diocese is the head of the bishop's curia, his uh, uh, administration. And for many years in many dioceses, you had women functioning uh, in this role and telling priests what to do. In fact, I think we know of one case, Your Excellency and I, where uh, some gal who was uh, a chancellorette in the diocese called up a, a pastor to complain to him that, that he was spending too much money on groceries. Yes, yes, yeah. that, that's a real case that I know of. You know, they had to justify. Yeah, I think my response is, well, honey, why don't you come up and cook for me? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, they have. They had no housekeeper. They couldn't afford a housekeeper, so they would, uh, you know, send out for food and things like that. And of course, that costs money, and so they were spending too much. They were in a, you know, very poor parish. I mean, it was uh, just, a, I mean, not much collection, and so. There were two priests, and and so that's and one of them did cook. You know, an elderly one did do some cooking, but from time to time they would either send out or go out, but not to fancy places, just ordinary places to eat. But that that was no good. So you had to answer. You know, why are you spending all that money on food? And uh, you know, it's just so demeaning. And, and and worse than that is is priests in these these parishes being told how to say their mass by these councils of women who are on the liturgical commission for the church for the local parish. And so the pastor becomes the 
the victim of you know, the whims of these, these women who have all sorts of odd ideas about what should happen on the altar. I mean, who, it's no wonder they have no priests. Who would want to live a life like that? <laughs> I can't, and, and of course, you can put in their mouths the uh, formulation of St. Greta, how dare you? Yes. Uh, I think that um, if one might be afraid of a Father Chicago wielding a clipboard uh, critiquing your mass, I can't imagine a committee of these women roving around uh, correcting what you're doing. What kind of man would sit for being dictated to by a group of ladies who know nothing about sacred liturgy, about how the mass should be said and what should be done, what should be sung, etc.? They're powerless to do anything against it because it's all democratized since Vatican II. So, I mean, what they do attract, I think, are you know, half men or something, you know, I mean, people that, that have no self-respect and are willing to, to lead a life like that. Waiting to take orders from sister. Well, yeah. sister, I mean, not even sister. If it is sister, I mean, she, she's not distinguishable from some ordinary woman. Uh, but the, the, uh, just the whole idea of just any lay people telling a priest how to say his mass is, is just so absurd. But especially... Uh, you know, a group of ladies who are ignorant about all of the principles of Catholic liturgy. One thing that would be interesting to point out in this context is the, I suppose, the uh, psychological state of uh, people within the institution. One of the things that came up recently is that this uh, Bishop uh, Bransfeld, who is the Bishop of Wheeling, Charleston, West Virginia, for oh about 14 years had engaged in all sorts of financial improprieties and uh, making sexual advances at different people among the clergy and members of the laity. People knew about this. Uh, his diocesan officials knew about this, uh, and pastors knew about this. But the way that he was able to get away with it uh, was simply through fear. That the way the Novus Ordo Church is set up in the United States now, the way that you're uh, appointed, say, to parishes and different institutions, is it's only for a short term. And it's six years, and the bishop can move you anywhere you want. Now, that's, that was a radical change in canon law, where beforehand, if you were appointed a pastor, uh, that was it. You couldn't be moved except in very special circumstances. And even then, you had a right to a trial, uh, by, which also involved uh, your fellow parish priests. And this was uh, imposed by church law as a way of ensuring that the priests of the diocese would not be subject to the whims of the bishop. So getting back to Charleston, all of the priests in the in parishes there serve at the will of the bishop for, I think, six-year terms. They might be able to be appointed a second term if they apply for it. That was done after Vatican II uh, precisely to dislodge people who would object to the changes in the church and to ensure that the modernist program was followed. And you see the, uh, the effect of that certainly in, in uh, uh, Charleston. So you have people who are members of the clergy figure, well, why should I challenge this, that, or the other thing? Uh, I'm getting paid 45000 a year. I have a good retirement fund, uh, et cetera. I know all this stuff is going on, but if I say anything, my goose is cooked by the bishop of the diocese. 
So it's a very sick sort of uh, sick and unjust uh, situation that uh, allows these different things to go on. So in the case of the the priest that we talked about who had uh, uh, some difficulty with the chancellorette, that, well, just wait till his term came up, uh, you know, she would have her revenge then. So that's that's the mindset that you confront and why so many things are allowed to go on. Well, His Excellency had referred to hand-wringing a, f- a few minutes ago, and again, the hand- hand-wringing continues. Uh, we, the undersigned Catholic clergy and lay scholars, protest against and condemn the sacrilegious and superstitious acts committed by Pope Francis, the successor of Peter, in connection with the recent Amazon Synod held in Rome. These sacrilegious acts are the following. On October the 4th, Pope Francis attended an act of idolatrous worship of the pagan goddess Pacamama. He allowed this worship to take place in the Vatican Gardens, thus desecrating the vicinity of the graves of the martyrs and of the Church of the Apostle Peter. He participated in this act of idolatrous worship by blessing a wooden image of Pacamama. On October the 7th, the idol of Pacamama was placed in front of the main altar at St. Peter's and then carried in procession to the Synod Hall. Pope Francis said prayers in a ceremony involving this image and then joined in this procession. When wooden images of this pagan deity were removed from the church of Santa Maria in Traspatina, where they had been sacrilegiously placed and thrown into the Tiber by Catholics outraged by this profanation of the church, Pope Francis on October the 25th apologized for the removal and another wooden image of Pacamama was returned to the church. Thus, a new profanation was initiated. On October the 27th, this is what Father Chicago referred to, in the closing Mass for the Synod, he accepted a bull, used an idolatrous worship of Pacamama, and placed it on the altar. Pope Francis himself confirmed that these wooden images were pagan idols, and his apology for the removal of these idols from a Catholic church, he specifically called them Pacamama, a name for a false goddess of Mother Earth, according to pagan religious belief in South America. So again, we, we've continued to have this, and I've reflected when people have asked me about this, um, Your Excellency and Father, the, the attitude which I think I've taken on from both of you, which is in, the hand-wringing while pointless is certainly, uh, in a certain sense, indicative of a, a helpful movement that people are realizing that there is something wrong here. Now, the fact that they don't do anything about it, uh, that, that, that's something else entirely. But uh, this recognition, this and this recent one had its own website called uh, Contra Recensia Sacrilegia against religious, and it was invited. Uh, other clergy and scholars can can put their own names to this statement as well. Hmm. Well, the uh, you know it's it's more of the same what we said before. These people are the hand ringers, and um, they don't come to the obvious and logical conclusion. Heaven knows anything but that, but. The giving of publicity to all of these things uh, does have the indirect uh, effect of uh, people turning to say to Vicantism and saying that that's the only thing that made sense. Again, I always talk about this. I got two letters just this week, and we're not at Saturday yet, of people who, who've uh, looked at these events who said he cannot be the Pope. Say to Vicantism is the only explanation that makes any sense whatsoever. So while directly we have hand-wringing, nevertheless, the publicity it's given does have that, that very good indirect effect. I would also add, however, that they have this idea that this solves the problem, that if there is, you know, the Cardinal Burks and the Bishop Schneider and all of these people who are protesting this and giving witness to the truth, uh, that therefore it's like uh, taking an antacid 
you know, everything is okay now and, and our stomachs are now calmed by the fact that we have made this protest. It's, <laughs> it's like the people in Paris going out and protesting. And that's totally false. Uh, uh, this isn't the way the Catholic Church works, but I, they have come up with this idea of of correcting the Pope when he goes astray, and 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 this is how we keep the Catholic Church on the right track. Uh, and uh, really, that is essentially Protestantism, uh, that we know better than the Pope, and uh, that uh, that you know, our our interpretation of Catholicism is better than the Pope's. Uh, that that's Protestant. And it's going to destroy the notion of the papacy in their followers and all of those uh, Novus Ordo conservatives and SSPX. It's, it's, it's going to destroy the notion of the papacy. The, what preserves the notion of the papacy is that if he is teaching false doctrine, if he is engaging in idolatry, that he ceases to be the pope. And uh, because it is impossible to reconcile those things with the Roman Catholic papacy. It's so clear, but uh, these people are trying to find a refuge in that. You know, it's like uh, going to the back of the Titanic uh, because the front is sinking and you'll be safe in the back. Something like that. We know what happened to the back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In our final segment, the et cetera segment, uh, there was a new piece of art installed in St. Peter's Square and late breaking a few days before uh, the recording of this episode we also have a, a crucifix in, in which instead of the corpus of our Lord we have a life jacket in place. I'll speak about both of these and then I'll allow His Excellency and, and Father to comment as usual. So the Angels Unawares art that was installed in St. Peter's figures on the sculpture represent all historical eras and all cultures and include a Hasidic Jew escaping Nazi Germany, a modern day Syrian Muslim, a Cherokee man on the trail of tears, a pregnant Polish woman escaping communism, and an Irish boy finding relief from the potato famine. There are ancient refugees from the biblical era and others who migrated through Ellis Island to find a new home in America. An Italian immigrant carries with him a bag of food, suggesting that he and others brought life to the New World as they immigrated to America. So you have to imagine this uh, in the embrace of Bernini's colonnade. You have this uh, angels unaware. And then on December the 19th, uh, Pope Francis met with 33 asylum seekers from the the Greek island of Lesbos. And the cross, uh, transparent cross, was encircled by an orange life jacket exactly where where Christ would be placed in the cross. And it appears as if the cross is wearing a migrant's life jacket and uh, Francis blessed this this cross, this crucifix, if you want to call it that. So there are several different narratives going on here. Uh, Your Excellency and Father, I'll I'll let you, uh, as you do, comment. Well, the idea of the angels unaware or unawares, whatever that is, uh, is isn't another expression of humanitarianism. These are, uh, yes, you know, tragic things that happened uh, uh, in the history of the world. And uh, I, you know, to put modern day Syrian uh, refugees uh, among people who were actually truly uh, suffering, you know, I I think is a big stretch because, uh, you know, I think that uh, they live in a world of violence. Um, Islam is, is, is something that has always been a, a violent thing, and I think they live in a world of violence. 
And uh, whereas in other cases, it's, you know, other people who are persecuting. So, you know, it's just, again, making a, a religion out of human uh, misery and uh, that our purpose is to relieve human misery. And, and that's, that's the purpose of that artwork. You know? So uh, and then, you know, as far as the, the migrants, all of that migration is all part of the general plan of destroying the nation states, making nation states merely regions of the general world republic. You know, so uh, the idea of borders and, and a nation state that has citizenship and non-citizenship and passports and, and whatnot, that all of that has to disappear. Also, what must disappear is the last vestiges of Christianity in Europe. So if you introduce Muslims, Obviously, and then you have all of the diversity people saying we have to be diverse, uh, so Christianity disappears. And as if it has not already disappeared by the fact that Vatican II has been around for 60 years. Uh, that has done most of the damage. And then also the, the destruction of the traditional European races, too. Uh, that, you know, this is considered, you know, like racism to say this, but it, it's true that each culture... Each country has a very specific culture that is rooted in those races. And, and you know, there's France and there's Germany, there's England, uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. And the preservation of those races is very much attached to the preservation of those cultures. And uh, so, but when you introduce other cultures in there from various places in the world, you're, you're going to uh, uh, you know, just destroy what made uh, Europe a very, very great thing. Uh, we see what Europe went through when it was invaded by all the barbarians in the uh, 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries. It took centuries to get over that. The Roman way of life in the Roman Empire was totally overturned by the fact that these barbarians arrived. It's not a good thing. For people who just walk into a country and sit down and say, you know, we're here and we're part of this country, that's not a good thing for any country. Uh, and that's why there are borders and why there is a, a path to citizenship, etc. It's not to say that everyone should be excluded, but there, there should be a, uh, a merit system, a system whereby you, you prove that you're going to be a, a contributing citizen and, and somebody that would be desirable to the, to the nation that admits you. Uh, and and not just people wandering around. I mean, if you open that door, who is not suffering? I mean, when you consider all of the the, the, the poverty in Africa and all of the poverty in, in India and Bangladesh, and if you open open uh, the the doors to all of those people, you're going to just reduce the entire world to to poverty essentially. So you know it, it's. Um, that, that, but that's the whole idea, is to amalgamate all the races, amalgamate all the religions, do away with the nation states. So that idea of the migrants and you know, making a religion out of the migrants is all part of that. And it's a question of the use of uh, art, as it were, for, uh, you know, uh, agitprop, as the communists would say, that uh, the use of art for propaganda. The interesting thing is here that this representation of the Hasidic Jew, Muslim, Cherokee, etc., pregnant Polish women, that this was a type of modern art that was actually representational that you could figure out. The other type of modern art 
if they had installed some sort of figure, uh, figures uh, like that in the true modern sculptural style, you couldn't have told what the heck it was. You know, whether it was a uh, Polish immigrant or Irish boy uh, seeking relief from the potato famine or a train wreck, uh, you wouldn't have been able to get the idea across. But the fact that this thing was commissioned and placed in a very prominent, uh, one of the most prominent places you could put it in St. Peter's Square is, uh, you know, a demonstration that it's, it's, it's intended to be propaganda for globalism to uh, promote the malignant globaloni. Well, we are at the end of the year. We're recording this uh, um, getting close towards New Year's Eve. So as I, I do with every episode of Francis Watch, I, I'll ask His Excellency and Father um, not only what's going on at the seminary and at St. Gertrude's, but uh, what their assessment is for the year in general and, and what the prognosis is for the year going forward. Your Excellency, if you'd like to start. Uh, we completed the trimester. Um, nothing remarkable about that. The seminarians uh, celebrated Christmas and then they went home. That's what's happening at the seminary. And you've um, not commissioned any sculptures of them immigrating home, anything like that? No, no, there's no, uh, no, no, none of that. Just uh, <laughs> the life is very quiet now, and uh, it's, there's just nothing. It, it, this, uh, it's all peace and calm. Uh, nothing is going on. Here at St. Gertrude's, there's, as usual, quite a bit going on. Uh, you know, the, the the liturgical season started, etc. We've had a number of celebrations, parish parties, etc. Christmas was uh, very successful here. We had a very good attendance on Christmas, very good in terms of uh, also of um, uh, viewing online. The next thing that we have scheduled that's uh, uh, out of the ordinary would be uh, the uh, celebration of the Feast of the Epiphany. On the Epiphany, we traditionally have a Mass in the evening, uh, sometimes solemn, sometimes pontifical Mass, followed by an Epiphany party, which is uh, always a, a great occasion for celebration. And with that, our uh, school starts, uh, starts up again in its semester. And then uh, during the course of the month of January, I will be going to the seminary one of the weeks, and and the following week will be the priest retreat at the seminary conducted by Bishop Dolan. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any, I, I suppose I can press a little bit further, Yassine, ask if there's any news further on seminary building or expansion plans? Well, we are launching our building fund, and uh, I am uh, asking for $3,000 per donor, and my goal is to raise $1.5 If we can find 500 people, that will donate $3,000. I base that on what I asked for back in the early 1980s for the building of the addition upon <coughs> Ridgefield, and that's where I asked for $1,000, and people responded very, very well at that time. Even though that was uh, right on the ed the end of a recession, remember the late seventies, they responded very well. So I looked up the inflation converter, and sure enough, that came to three thousand dollars today. That's the same amount of money. 
So I thought that was an appropriate uh, thing to ask for. And uh, we did very well at that time. Of course, you know, that's when the Society of St. Pius X was uh, the only traditional or viable traditional group around. So almost everybody who was traditional was was associated with that. So we don't, we're not going to see the numbers that we saw at that time. But nonetheless, I think we, we will be successful in raising that money. Uh, and uh, the goal is either to buy or to build uh, something that will be suitable for uh, handling more seminarians. You know, just uh, as time goes on, as Bergoglio sends us seminarians, we have to think about the future. Now, you know, it's not absolutely critical for next year, but I ha- this is going to take a long time. and. Uh, we'll see what happens, you know, if, if we have to find, if we decide to buy, uh, which would be cheaper, we have to find exactly the right place. And that's, that's difficult. That's very difficult. There are many, many requirements that we have. It has to be near a big airport, for example, which people may not realize. It has to have a chapel. It has to have dormitories. Uh, it has to uh, be in an area that is relatively Catholic. It can't be in you know the the backwoods of Alabama or you know in Bible Belt country. Or it has to be in a, a well placed as far as Catholics are concerned. And uh, so you know there's a lot to it that um, that people don't realize. So we'll just see how it goes. But we need a, a war chest, so to speak. We need to be able to move one way or the other. Right now we you know we cannot. So. We need to build up something that will take maybe a few years. Even you're looking for just a few good men and women, you're actually just five hundred. Yeah, I think I think five hundred is a reasonable goal for us. Uh, you know, we don't uh, we don't have that many benefactors. I, I think that would be you know, if we have five hundred, uh, that might be even a lot. Where we're not uh, what you call rolling in cash by any means at all. You know? But even though our benefactors are very generous with us, but. Uh, there's just not that many of them. And, and uh, so uh, we, we cannot build the $30 million seminary that the SSPX has built in Virginia or the, the, the $60 million or whatever church they're going to build in, in Kansas. We, we, that is outside of our possibilities. But the, the good part about it is that we are in, in possession of the truth, whereas they are not. And that's worth a lot more than $60 million. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think that's that, really true. Uh, uh, that reminds me, Stephen. In fact, we do have a, a modest uh, expansion plan here. Uh, it occurred to us that, uh, you know, thanks to all the good that has been done uh, in at Most Holy Trinity Seminary, uh, through uh, your help and uh, through your support of all the, uh, the listeners, that we will have... Um, uh, a couple more priests here in uh, in a few years, and so we're uh, contemplating uh, a, uh, a modest expansion of uh, what we call the convento. Originally, it was a building designed as as a convent, but when priests became available, we made it into a priest residence. So we're um, uh, trying to figure out now, and we think we have a a, a decent plan. To expand that to accommodate a few more of the priests who would be ordained, and then um, from here we would uh, continue to service uh, different missions in different parts of the United States. So that I guess would be a bit of progress as well. In terms of uh, what we would need, I haven't really figured that out, or a uh, 
goal for our benefactors, but we could always use the line that there is no donation that is too big. Okay, so <laughs> uh, that uh, that should inspire you. Okay. Yes, if, if all we have a uh, a year of seminarians that would all be ordained together, and I forget what year they're in first theology, so I'd have to figure out the year, but they would all be ordained together in Cincinnati, all four of them, which would be a nice ceremony. Because oh, yeah, be- there's two Nigerians who are associated, obviously, with Bishop Dolan, and then there's two fellows from Cincinnati, uh, one from Kentucky, other, the other from Ohio. And uh, so uh, they should all be ordained together. They're all in the same class. And so uh, that will be a nice ceremony to look forward to. Oh, yeah, fantastic. We're already trying to book the jets for the flight over, <laughs> for the flyovers. <laughs> well, think of that carbon dioxide, though. Look at the, you know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That I think you should have a horse walk walk bys or something like a like a horse stampede uh, that's, that's might be better. That's right. And then you would save the byproduct of the horse as you know some sort of organic fertilizer for something else on the property. I believe. Well, there's not only that, but there's also all of the air coming out, which you can't you know bottle. And yeah, so, that's right. you know, the, and the, then we'd have a, to get the sailing know. ships to send the Nigerians back. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> That that would only be if we were named St. Greta the Great, I think. <laughs> yes, St. Greta the Great. <laughs> it's a very su- sustainable practice for, to home grow your own clergy, your Assisian <laughs> father. That's always the most convenient thing to do. Yes. yes. So, Locally uh, sourced. We, we, have, Locally we don't want sourced. to have any ecological sins on our soul. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, uh, which is how we begun this episode, uh, Your Excellency Father, I'll let you uh, go and we'll continue to discuss these things in the new year. As always, uh, I and the listeners, thank you for your time. Okay, thank you. Thank you, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you all. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.